This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, Season 6, Episode 6. Welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network of podcasts brought to you by Mountain Man Medical. Today is Wednesday, April 20th, 2022, and I am your host, Jacob Paulson, and I'm also joined today by Matthew Marister. Your normal host, Riley Bowman, is out today, and we excuse his absence. He will be back with the normal schedule next week. I'll have a little moment of silence for you guys and since he's gone, but now we'll, now we'll move on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, moment of silence recognized. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about legislative updates. We got some updates from several different states, things that are going on, plus some drama from the Biden administration. And uh, my goodness, no fun there. So we're going to get into all of that and more. But first, our sponsored messages. Two of them. But we always have two in case you care or don't count. First, today's episode is brought to you by the Legal Boundaries by State book. Legal Boundaries by State is a reference book, a legal reference book. Its uh, most recent update was January 1st, and the book it gets updated a couple times a year. You can always download the most updated version of the ebook from your user account on consultcare.com if you've ever purchased the book in the past. So in other words, customers get free updates. So make sure if it's been a while since you downloaded an update, you go to consultcare.com, log into your account, go to downloads, and it'll show the ebook there and get that downloaded so that you can be up to date on all the latest changes. The Legal Boundaries by State book is designed for travelers, but it effectively has a single page legal summary for all the relevant gun laws for all 50 states, plus a bunch of other great information. So check that out at consultcare.com forward slash gun law book. Also, today's episode is brought to you by the EDC Belt Company's Foundation Belt. The Foundation Belt is our preferred go-to belt for carrying concealed guns and stuff. Uh, It's not too stiff. That's what I love most about it. It's stiff enough where it needs to be, but it's flexible and not too stiff where it shouldn't be so as to correctly balance comfort and yet effectiveness for you know, carrying a concealed firearm. So thank you TDC Belt Co. for designing such a great belt. And you can learn more about that at concealedcarry.com forward slash foundation belt. There awesome. you go. Awesome. Yeah. So without further ado, because we're not tangent rambling dudes like Riley, let's just jump right into this. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Matthew, we got our first one here. This is an article. You found this. You hunted this down from Reason.com, which is not a website I'm terribly familiar with. It says free minds and free markets at the top. So, yeah, they got some strong feelings about something. <laughs> um, but it's got a, an interesting video, a 16-minute video, and, and a pretty lengthy article uh, that contains some research about some research. So from what I understand, basically, and I'm going to let you kind of give the, the punchline, but a rather significant undertaking was done to to study the to to, to perform some research on over twenty seven thousand nine hundred other research publications that have been done on gun control laws. So someone sat back and said, "Hey, tons of research has been done to determine whether or not gun control laws are effective, and whether or not they reduce gun violence." Uh, let's let's take a hard look at all the research that's already been done and really scrutinize it a bit and see if any of it holds any weight or if the research sucks, if it was crappy and, and you know, really won't, wouldn't hold up to a microscope. So so they, they, they first they create their data pool. They find apparently 27,900 uh, research studies that have been done, publications that have been put out there on the effectiveness of gun control laws. And they go through those and, and, and take a hard look at them. And, and obviously, they're looking at how the research was performed, uh, how big the sample size was, how the questions were asked, how the data was gathered, uh, what parameters were considered, what variables were taken into account and, and accounted for, uh, all that kind of stuff that you know professional researchers, which I am not, uh, would in theory do in order to have viable research. So, so Matthew, like, what's the punchline here? What, what, is, what did we learn from the research that was just done on all the other research. Yeah. So you, you gave a great like overarching uh, understanding of this article. And I highly suggest you guys check out the, um, 
the show notes because the the article is very in depth and there's a like uh, Jacob mentioned there's a 16 minute video um, that explains how they come come up with this and you know we know that a lot of times in these research um, you know hey there was a study and it shows this and there's no link to any of the doc the, the information or how they gathered it or anything like this so um, so basically this this article does a really good job of, 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 um, linking out to the source information and, um, and goes in depth and says, look, you know, you hear how, you know, Congress or, or the gun control, uh, advocates are saying, you know, the NRA doesn't want any research done on gun violence or guns and, and, uh, gun control laws and things like that. Well, there's 27,000, like you said, 27,900 different independent research uh, studies that have been done on gun violence and the efficacy um, of gun control laws. Okay. And what the RAND Corporation did was kind of look at this. And the RAND Corporation is not, you know, a government owned, uh, you know, a political arm of any political party or anything like that. Right. It's, it's independent apparently, or, you know, generally non-biased one way or the other, but um, looks at these 27,900 studies and finds that only 0.4% or 123 actually had any meaningful data. The other, you know, 99.6% um, of the studies, the information was it was d taken and, and, and can't be relied upon. There's, there's, um, I'm not a statistician, but there are, it goes in depth and says why, um, for example, um, these, one of the studies said that um, restrictive gun laws for uh, child access. So we we hear a lot about like child access laws and it, you know, we can reduce uh, gun violence if we institute restrictive gun access laws for children and for minors and for, um, you know, uh, people that break into your home and, and, and all this stuff. Right. Well, they said, um, that they're that looking at the, the statistic, the data that's there, that potentially there could be two kids that are saved across 11 States each year. If these are, if these, you know, laws were in place, um, and not that's not to discount like two lives and right like I, I'm not I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying the the data is so confusing and so um, it, it's impossible to gather any substantive su substantive correlation to gun crime. Um, the, it goes in depth and talks about these these. Um, when you hear these statistics that the politicians are using and saying, you know, 40% reduction in crime when they enacted, um, you know, conceal, uh, tighter concealed carry laws or uh, licensing regulations, right? These are, these are formulas based off of like speculative statistics of a state given if they didn't, if they did do this or they didn't. And so the, the numbers are not actual numbers. They're, they take these, it, it's just a word game of, I'm going to take these, I'm going to, I'm going to speculate on this. I'm going to compare this state to, you know, another country and what they've done over there and say, well, it worked over there. So therefore it should work in Massachusetts, just the same as it works in Norway. And so they, they do all these, these shell games of moving numbers around. And, um, it, I, I thought it was really good because, um, it, it didn't say at the end of the day, like uh, gun laws are not that gun laws, strict gun laws won't reduce crime. And it said the statistics can't prove one way or the other, right? Like it may suggest that, but it may not. We just don't know. And so I think, you know, Riley um, and I have gone back and forth and I know Jacob, we've talked about this on um, a couple podcasts is like, um, when we say that stricter gun laws all automatically lead to higher crime, 
it may be accurate in some situations, in some cases, and, and, and um, to say that, but it might not be the, the, the one driving factor, right? And, and, and so we can't necessarily just look at um, gun laws and say more gun laws, less crime, or more gun laws, higher crime. It, it just does. It's not that simple. So I, I, I took a 16 minute video and probably took five minutes to kind of give you a little, um, spattering of what was involved, but I, I would highly suggest checking out the video. It's, it's, it's really good. It's interesting because this, by the way, this article and this video that Matthew's referencing, which will be linked in the show notes of today's show, it, it's not just saying that research that says gun control is effective is flawed. It's saying all research related to gun control is flawed. In other words, you know, both sides of the aisle that are out there stating research, well, more guns means less crime, or hey, more guns means more crime. Like all, and, and this, you know, we know because such and such you know, proves it. Like both both sides of the aisles are stating research that's extraordinarily poor and flawed. Um, it, and it and it, the authors of this study talk about how that's that's not even unique to gun control, frankly. That it's it's pretty common with anything that's a kind of hyper political issue, uh, because frankly, what happens is politicians need stuffing. It's, in fact, I'll quote: "It says these glaring meth- methodological method man methodological that sounds like I'm not saying that right flaws are not specific to gun control research. They are typical of how the academic publishing industry responds to demands from political partisans for scientific evidence that does not exist. Mm-hmm. So it's just a very kind of common trend. In other words, you know, politicians say we need research that proves X point. And so someone scrapes something together that's, that's, you know, no legitimate researcher would ever call viable. Um, but it, you know, it's close enough to pass initial scrutiny by the uninformed. And so then it can be used by tol- politicians to support their position. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the point here is that that's not viable. Now, unfortunately, the problem is that it will continue to happen. Like these guys pointing out that of the 27,900, you know, things that they looked at, basically, you know, 27,770 were completely useless. I mean, just deeply flawed in their words. Uh, the other remaining 123 that they that they think were not deeply flawed. So of, of the 27,900 that they looked at, they think, oh, 123 of these are actually not horrible. Like these are pretty, pretty good, you know, like someone who actually understands research and statistics did these other 123. So they, of 27,900, they come up with 123 that look viable. But the, but the takeaway is that of those 123, the reason those 123 studies were all inconclusive. Mm -hmm. So the 123 that were actually good, that actually like would, would pass some sort of academic scrutiny as far as research is concerned, those 123 all came to the same conclusion, which is, yeah, we don't really know. (laughs) So, so what, so in the instances where, where the research was quality looking into the effect of gun control and gun crime in those situations, that research was also inconclusive. It came to no uh, ultimate uh, outcome at all. Put differently, there's probably too many variables and too much to look at to actually draw any sort of correlation between uh, gun laws, gun control type laws, and their effect on violent crime. Like that's the takeaway here. If if, if 27,900 studies have been done and 27,777 just outright sucked and the other 123, which are viable, came to no conclusion, then probably the takeaway is we're never really going to come to much conclusion on this because it would be too difficult. It, like It's not really doable uh, from a research perspective. Uh, and I think that's that's probably one of the, the, the bigger, I guess, thing here. I, I was going to read one more little quote from this, uh, Matthew, and then I'll have said my say about this. Yeah. Uh, but it says, of the 123 papers, and it's referring to 123 of the original 27,900 that, that, you know, that they looked at, of the 123 that, that didn't suck, the 123 papers identified by RAND tested 722 separate hypotheses about the impact of gun control policies for statistical significance. Peer-reviewed journals generally accept a result as statistically significant if it has a 1 in 20 chance or less 
of being a one or 20 chance or less of being due to random chance. So if researchers run 100 tests on the relationship between two things that obviously have no connection to each other at all, say for example, milk consumption and car crash and car crashes by pure chance, they can be expected to get five statistically significant results. They're entirely coincidental, such as that milk drinkers get into more accidents. So I'll continue the quote. I'm sorry. This this is worth reading out loud. In terms of the gun control studies deemed rigorous by Rand of the the 123 that didn't suck, this means that even if there were no relationship between gun laws and violence, much like the relationship between drinking milk and getting into car accidents, we'd nevertheless expect about 5% of the studies, 722 tests or 36 results, to show that gun regulations had a significant impact. But the actual papers found positive results for only 18 combinations of gun control measure and outcome. That's not directly comparable to the 36 expected false positives since some combinations had the support of multiple studies, but it is not out of line with what we'd expect if gun control measures made no difference. Put differently, the outcome of the data when trying to correlate these two things in the studies that didn't suck, that weren't deeply flawed, was such that it it was even less correlation than you would expect in a random sample between two completely unrelated things. So, yeah. yeah. And, and, and that, that was a huge, that was a huge, like eye-opening thing to me um, because those are the things that like, I think people jump onto, re- latch onto really quickly. And then they, they hang their hat on that, right? Like it's some random, like we can't confirm that this is the, the effect of that, but we see it and, and therefore we're going to believe it. And that is the cause in, in, um, another thing that they mentioned in there is that they also not only do they um, take these small um, correlations that could be completely random and run with them, but they suppress the, the, the major narrative is suppressing the um, negative results. So if something, if there is a correlation that is, you know, shows that the the opposite, right? Like most of these are, Hey, do gun, do gun control laws help? Um, if there is a correlation that shows the exact opposite that says, no, it actually hurts. Like it makes it worse. Um, they suppress those and they go through statistics and show that, you know, there's, there's like only one out of these, I I don't know, 27,900 studies where they actually, um, will, will report that, that they've actually used re- to report a, a negative result when they're in like almost all of them, right? Like there, there's negative results in almost every single one of these, uh, uh reviews or, or, uh, studies. So, but the, they only mention one and it's just, it, it just shows like there is definitely, um, a game being played across both sides and, and, you know, up and down and media here and there. Um, so I think my takeaway from this was understand when you're having a conversation with somebody, when they start throwing out statistics and say, where are you getting these statistics and understand like, that's not actually what that report says. Um, you're taking a summary from, you know, some news anchor on some news show that summarized something that can't be substantiated one way or the other. And I think it's important to stay one way or the other, because I think that it's important for us to take the higher road. And by that, I mean that we also need to question studies that support the pro-gun narrative, because I don't I don't think we can justify um, using crappy research because it supports our beliefs mm-hmm. any more than we want the, the other side of the debate to support their points by using by citing crappy research. So, mm-hmm. you know, consider that on both sides of that all. Uh, are you familiar, Matthew, with this website, TylerVigan.com? He's he has got these um he's calls them spurious, I don't even know if that's how you pronounce it, spurious correlations on no, this website. No. Uh, it's hilarious. And anyway, I'll I'll put the link in the show notes, but he he points out like really weird correlations that are obviously unrelated, but they look fantastic. For example, Number of people who drowned by falling into a pool perfectly correlates with films Nicolas Cage appears in. <laughs> you know, and like per capita cheese consumption perfectly correlates with the number of people who died by becoming tangled in their bed sheets. Wow. Uh, the divorce rate in Maine perfectly correlates with the per capita consumption of margarine. Uh, the, the age of Miss America perfectly correlates with the murders by steam, hot vapors, and hot objects in America. So, the, the, the point is simply that 
like you can point out the things correlate in any almost any random sample. And that's the that's one of the points of this this research. But that doesn't mean that they're actually related. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it, it's it's called random and it happens. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's move on. So we're going to Georgia. Georgia did something that's kind of a big deal. We've been talking about this one for a while. Give it to us, Matthew. What went down? Yeah, so Georgia becomes the 25th constitutional carry state, which was is fantastic. Uh, we got half the states now with constitutional carry. Governor Kemp signed this into law uh, April 12th, uh, so earlier this month, and it went into effect immediately. And like uh, you know, the the language in the bill is is your general, you know, mostly generic um, constitutional carry bill. The uh, the constitutional carry, uh, or the, I'm sorry, the, the concealed carry license program is still in effect. It's still the same. Um, it's just optional now. And it basically, uh, just removes the requirement. And, uh, and yeah, it's, uh, it's a good thing. We're, we're moving across the country with these, uh, constitution, constitutional carry laws. And, uh, yeah, we're halfway there. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty wild. Um, I'm going to quickly just read off out loud all the current constitutional carry states. And this will include states who have passed the law, but it has not yet gone into effect. So, so I'm going to you know read off all 25 for those who, who want the list. And I, I do this geographically. You'll get the gist. Alaska, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Utah, Arizona, North Dakota, South Dakota, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, Iowa, Missouri, Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, Kentucky, Indiana, Ohio, West Virginia, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. So it's it's a pretty impressive slice. It's not quite 50% of the U.S. population has access to constitutional carry, but it is 50% of the uh, of the states, right? Half, 25 of the 50. So that's that's a pretty big deal. And good on you, Georgia. Uh, Florida is one that continues to kind of be debated, and it seems to continue to fail and not go through. But as, for those of you who are listening, you know, con- if you're in Florida, continue to contact your uh, legislature, legislature, your state representatives and state senators, <laughs> and also know that uh, sometimes it takes time. I mean, Utah, they were working on that thing for like a decade. That thing didn't get passed, didn't get passed, got passed and vetoed. I mean, all sorts of things over and over again until they finally got it through. So uh, sometimes it just takes time. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll just leave you with the uh, the quote that uh, Governor Kemp said when he signed the the bill into law. He said, "There is no doubt that we're living in challenging times across the country. We're witnessing liberal states and cities demonize law enforcement, defund police departments, undermine public safety, and threaten the security of our countless American families. But we are not going to have that here in our state." SB three nineteen makes sure that law abiding Georgians can protect themselves without having uh, without having to have permission from your state government. The Constitution of the United States gives us that right, not the government. Good job, Governor. <laughs> All right. Now we're going to turn and talk about the Biden administration and our friends at the ATF. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So this has been an ongoing drama show. And I don't need to, I'll let Matthew hash out the details, but, but, you know, generically, broadly speaking, I think we understand that the president of the United States does not have the power to just poof, create a law and and make it a law, right? Like laws have to go through Congress and they have to get voted on and passed. And then, and then the executive signs those into law. And we've not seen gun related laws make their way through the U S Congress in a very long time. But we do see things happen through administrative rulings at the at the national level. For example, I'll just quickly point out that President Trump effectively uh, demonized or made illegal bump stocks mm-hmm. after the Las Vegas incident in 2017 by having the ATF change some definitions of things to incorporate or include bump stocks in a list of things that are illegal. And so whether uh, you know, Biden got the idea from Trump or this has been going on for much longer than that, more likely – is really irrelevant. But but Matthew, tell us what's going on. Yeah, so this is from the NRA ILA. Um, and this has to do with the the definition, changing the definition of what a firearm is. And and we've covered this, you know, tons of times on different episodes. But um generally, you know, there's a point at, at, at which a chunk of metal or plastic or whatever uh is turns into a firearm. And at that point, 
you know, if you're a manufacturer, then it has to be serialized, you know, and, and um, it, it, it's a kind of a gray area, but roughly they say, you know, the, the rule is, or general is 80%, right? Like once it's, once it's over that, then it becomes a firearm. Um, so then that's where you get your 80% lowers that are technically not a firearm because they don't meet that criteria of what a firearm is. And so the NRA ILA kind of posted because like anything that's, that's, you know, legislated through some sort of agency like the ATF or DOJ comes out and, and they're going to monkey with some wording and wordsmith it, it becomes confusing on exactly because they're, they're changing definitions and they're, it, it, it becomes confusing, right? Like what is legal, what's not? So um, this, this article from the NRA ILA kind of uh, just goes some bullet points of what the rule does and what it doesn't. And I'll just hit, the, hit them really quick. Um, there, there's four here that says what the rule does. It effectively bans certain parts, um, often referred to as 80% receivers that assist individuals in making their own firearms. Under the rule, even receivers that clearly cannot yet function as a part of the firearm would be treated legally as a firearm. And that's what I was just mentioning. Um, uh, it would change the number of definitions in federal law that will, going forward, affect which part of a new firearm design will be considered the frame or receiver. And this, I believe, has to do with their, their aim at, you know, AR-15s trying to, you know, not only serialize um, the receiver part, the, the the lower, but the upper as well, and calling that a gun too, and then, um, you know, where that goes. Um, requiring licensed dealers who come into possession of unserialized firearms to place a serial number on the firearm within seven days under current law, only licensed importers and manufacturers are required to mark firearms, um, and require the indefinite retention of firearm transaction records by licensed dealers under current law. Records right now um, can be destroyed under uh, uh, after 20 years. And that's kind of like, there's always these things that slip in and like, we're talking about ghost guns. And now all of a sudden we're talking about, Oh no, it's not just ghost guns. It's you guys have to retain your records for, for forever. Um, which is a problem there. It's a massive problem. So, yeah. so we got Biden saying, Hey, let's just change. Let's just create a new rule, a new ATF rule. Let's change some words here and there. And let's, uh, and, and the NRA in the article that we're going to link in the show notes is basically saying, okay, this new rule that they've created here, here's the impact, here are the changes effectively this new rule is going to have. Um, there, there's good and new, bad news here. Like the, for me, the, the bad news is like this rule does nothing good. Like it's all bad. Um, the, the good news is it's just a rule, meaning it can be changed again later, right? Mm -hmm. Remember that. Like if Biden wanted to make bump stocks legal, he could do that too because all Trump did is make a rule. So, so this is not a law, which means it can be it can be changed later. But in the meanwhile, it creates a bunch of drama and confusion because you got you know who knows how many ATF agents out there trying to enforce the rules and the laws. And now the the goal, you know, the goal has changed. It's moved in the middle of the game, and so people are trying to, well, what do we do? How does this how does this work? And there's endless specific questions that are unanswered that just create tons of drama in the industry. It's just it's just nasty bad. Uh, it, it's a complete disaster. And and to your point, Matthew, in my opinion, the worst part about this is requiring FFLs to keep their records forever. Yeah. This is a huge issue because for those who don't know, when, when an FFL goes out of business, when they decide to no longer be a gun dealer, their records have to be surrendered to the ATF. Now, the ATF then in theory keeps some you know, basement you know, warehouse somewhere full of reti you know, retired a FFL paperwork and and the the only kind of grace that was in that was well the, the FFL only has to keep the records for twenty years so if the FFL has been in business for hundred years eighty years worth of that paperwork they've recycled by now and only the recent twenty could be seized by the ATF when they go out of business or close up shop well now I mean I, I don't even know how this is reasonable to expect like how do you even expect an FFL to keep records forever like if you've been in business for a long time this could mean like renting a warehouse space just to keep your records because a lot of this stuff is on, is just paper. I mean, there's no digital record. In some cases it's illegal to have a digital record. So it's, it's a pretty screwed up system uh, where it, for one, it creates an undue burden on the FFL on the dealer. And two, it effectively guarantees that eventually all the transactions end up in the ATF's hands. Yeah. Now I, 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 I'm not trying to throw any conspiracy theories here because like, if you think that the ATF has got a whole warehouse of, of, you know, digitizers, you're pulling up, you know, ancient P 
pink carbon copy records from 40 years ago to type them into a system in order to create a gun database. Like, I just don't believe that's true. I just don't think that's realistic or practical in any way, shape or form. But I still am completely against them getting the hands on all these records that the law very specifically prohibits there ever being a database of all this information. So all of this paper sitting somewhere in a warehouse is pretty close to there being a database, right? And so I'm not comfortable with that. And I, I think that, you know, arguably it could be considered unconstitutional. Yeah. I, I mean, the data is only good or the paper is only good if you can go and access it and get information from it, right? Like it just having boxes of receipts doesn't do anybody any good unless they can say, I can go to this box and pull something out and get useful information. So to me, the fact that they want to keep it means there's some sort of value to having it to get the information out of it, extract it out. If not, if it's just going to be, well, we're just going to have mounds of receipts all over the place, then shred it. You, you, you're not going to use it anyways. But so, yeah, to your point, I, I, I'm, I'm in the conspiracy theorist bucket with you, man. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> I, I don't think it's an immediate practical concern, but I do think it creates a long-term massive problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, how far are we are we from some AI that this crap can all just get thrown through a scanner and get digitized and organized into a database? Probably not that far. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's my point is yes, like there's I don't think there's there's like a today problem, but this is a definite problem because it creates a long term serious issue for for you know these mounds of paperwork to be kept anywhere. Yeah, uh, yeah, not not okay. Yeah. All right. Kansas kids in Kansas are getting a good deal. Governor Kelly signed a new bill into law on Wednesday morning, requiring the secretary of wildlife and parks to issue lifetime hunting and fishing licenses to Kansas kids. Children under the age of five can acquire a license for a price not exceeding 300 bucks. While those between six and seven get the license for a price not exceeding $500. This license can be paid for on behalf of the child. So that sounds like a pretty cool deal. Yeah. You know, lifetime fishing license that would save Matthew a lot of money. Exactly. And that's what I, I'm like, wh- why don't we do this all the time? Why, why isn't everybody doing this? You know, get get your kids involved. And, you know, I, I, I thought it was kind of cool. I saw that hunting and fishing, teaching kids how to be safe and respect nature and do, you know, it, it, all that stuff. I, I think that's awesome. So, yeah. Good job, Kansas. Yeah. And now some mixed messages coming from Maryland. <laughs> I mean that like mixed. Me- it's It's confusing. So. Yeah. Governor Hogan, I don't know you, but you are confusing. So, Mr. Larry Hogan, let's let's talk about this. So, for, so first, let's talk about House Bill 1021 in Maryland. So, House Bill 1021 uh, is is a bill that's designed to create some pretty oppressive dealer requirements on FFLs. So, basically, it would require all licensed farm dealers to have video surveillance and burglary alarm systems covering the premise and bars, security screens, you know, metal doors, grates, or other approved barriers on all doors and windows. Uh, they, they, if, if applicable, they would be required to have physical barriers to prevent ramming by vehicles. It requires dealers to lock away all firearms outside of business hours in vaults, safes, or rooms with all the security features above. So it's it's a pretty hefty deal. This is the kind of thing that takes Bob's guns down the corner that's been run by Joe Bob and Bobby Joe for the last hundred years, and it puts them out of business because they just can't. We're, we're talking about you know tens of thousands of dollars in capital expenditures that might have to be spent by a gun store to come into compliance with this kind of thing. And and certainly I understand that there's not before. Yeah, but don't we want to keep these you know guns from being stolen and this and that and all that's reasonable. But 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 forcing a you know industry-wide regulation like this doesn't take into account any of the specific circumstances that any one given dealer might have or not have. It just creates undue burden. And so it's it's a serious problem. Now, here's the confusing part for me, Matthew. Uh, This bill gets passed, okay, and it goes to the governor, and the governor, Governor Larry Hogan, vetoes the bill. Mm -hmm. Says, no, 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 we can't do this. It's a bad idea. So it goes back to the General Assembly, and they override the veto. They get the votes, and they put it, and they make it a law anyway. Mm-hmm. Now, that happens, so that's not, that's not unheard of, but it it's just feels a little inconsistent for Governor Hogan, uh, frankly, because, Matthew, tell us, tell us what else went down in Maryland. Yeah, so, you know, he, he 
kind of makes a stand, right? Says, hey, this is too oppressive for our FFLs and gun rights, and and and, and we're not going to have that for our, our businesses and stuff. But then um, Senate Bill 387, House Bill 425, which um, criminalizes or outlaws, bans, however you want to say it, um, unserialized firearms. So getting your ghost gun, you know, all the hype around ghost guns, um, that bill gets passed through the House and Senate, makes its way up to uh, the governor's desk, and he doesn't veto it, and he doesn't sign it. He says, hey, good job on this uh, bill. I'm, I'm happy. You know, I think, I think it's, it's a step in the right direction. I'm not pleased that it doesn't address you know, the criminals that are actually committing crimes with these guns. Um, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to veto it and I'm not going to sign it. I'm just going to allow it to pass into it, into law. So, you know, if, if, if it doesn't go one way, if he doesn't put a signature one way or the other, it just becomes law. Right. And so on the one hand, you know, he's, he's, you know, saying I'm going to stand with the gun owners here. On the other hand, um, a, a bill that would not just make it so you couldn't buy or import, uh, 80% lowers or kits or build your own, it, it would, it would criminalize possession of a, an unserialized firearm. And so that's, that's a big thing, right? Like, okay, you, you want to limit the, the ability to buy a kit that's pretty much already there together with all the parts. Okay. You can have the argument one way or the other, but now you're saying, even if you just have it, you haven't committed a crime, you haven't done anything you're going to, they said it's a, a first degree or it's a misdemeanor punishable up to two years um, imprisonment, but you wouldn't lose, you wouldn't have a lifetime ban on your gun possession. If you sell or transfer a firearm that's unserialized, it's a misdemeanor, misdemeanor punishable up to five years and a $10,000 fine, and you would be unable to own firearms permanently. Pretty, pretty strict for having a firearm that you legally built and possessed you know, before the law goes into effect. Um, and then all of a sudden after it, now you, you, it's a, it's a huge thing, right? So trying to figure it out. Yeah. Um, here, here's some good news. Governor Hogan appears to actually employ critical thinking. Mm -hmm. Uh, he actually appears to like form his own opinions and make decisions, which is more than we can say for a lot of politicians who just strictly, you know, go with partisan rules, right? Like I am part of X party. Therefore I approve all the following or I disapprove all the following, you know, gun measures. Um, this guy actually appears to have opinions and do some critical thinking. Uh, we just happen to not agree with the decision he made sure. relative to this ghost gun ban and, and, and particularly how far it went. Um, you know, if, if it just outlawed the acquisition of future unserialized firearms that might be or, or potential firearm kits or builds, that might be the kind of thing I still would disagree with. But I would I would at least say it's a little bit more in line with what we're seeing uh, it really commonly. But this bill is is crazy style. I mean, to, to your point, Matthew, to completely criminalize the existing possession of something that was acquired legally at the time it was acquired is 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 crazy bold. Um, for those of you who live in Maryland, you should know that this new law goes into effect, I think, October. I'm, I'm looking for that now. Do you see it, Matthew? It, it was October 1st. October 1st. So presumably before October 1st, if you own any unserialized firearms or build kits, you need to get them serialized, um, which is, is not a terribly complex process. You can Google it at your convenience. Yeah. And, and, and back to the uh, just one quick thing on the on the you know requirements for the, the FFLs. Um, I'm just curious, like how, what is the enforcement apparatus of this? Right. And like, you know, so you, like you said, there's, there's no, um, individualized, you know, looking at this individualized. So if I own a, a small shop and I, I have an inventory of 12 guns, but I have an FFL, I have to invest in, you know, these lock bollards that block the access and all this stuff. And it doesn't make sense, you know, clear. So I, I don't know who's going to come around and, and, and enforce this or make sure they're in compliance. But this is that's that's really rough. I mean, I, I don't know. I, well, I, consider like, you're like what I call the garage FFL, mm -hmm. right? We have roughly 60,000 FFLs in this country. More than half do not have a retail establishment there. These are people that have an FFL, but they operate out of their home, you know, and they just 
get, use, they have an FFL to acquire some guns for themselves, maybe some for some friends, or maybe because they like doing some gunsmith work, or maybe it's because they um, you know want an SOT so they can have some some uh, class three items, you know, suppressors or whatever else without some of the hassle that's associated with that. Uh, but now, like, do I got to put bars and stuff on my garage door, like my, my house and my windows and, you know, all sorts of stuff. Like, right. I don't know. I, I haven't read the bill. So maybe there's an exclusion. Maybe you have to meet certain criteria in order for this to apply to you. But it, yeah, the fact that it takes into, that there's just no latitude. In my experience, retail gun shops already do most of this stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'll acknowledge that we're, but for the for the average modern gun dealer, this probably isn't a significant burden because they're probably already doing these things anyway. Because we don't like getting stolen from, we don't like losing our inventory, and we certainly like being able to sleep with a with a clear conscience, knowing that we've done all we can do to keep guns off the street and out of the hands of criminals. So, so all that said, though, it it is unfairly broad, and I think the governor was right to veto it, but unfortunately, that didn't do the trick. All right, let's go back to Utah. I used to live in Utah, Matthew, so I will talk about what's going yeah. down here. So Governor Cox signed Senate Bill 115. Senate Bill 115 enhances Utah's existing fire and preemption statute by providing a mechanism to ensure compliance. So Utah already had a fire and preemption statute. It already existed, but there was really no way to enforce it, to hold accountable local jurisdiction or municipality that that broke that statute. And so now this new bill, Senate bill, what I say, 115, I think. Yeah, 115 mm-hmm. has been passed and signed into law that will create a mechanism to actually enforce the preemption law. For those who are not familiar with the term fire and preemption law, is something we love to throw around in our in our industry. It's a good catchphrase. And what we mean here is that it's a it's a law, generally a state law, that would prevent local, you know, lower municipalities, so in this case city or county, from passing a law that is any more strict than the existing state law. So if the law, for example, if the state law does not allow for, doesn't have anything about banning magazines with a certain capacity, then a local jurisdiction within the state could not pass such a law uh, because that would be more strict than the current state statutes on this on the subject or on the topic. And so Utah already had a law like this, but they recognized that it had a flaw. And so they've patched that as they see it. Yeah. And, and- I know you're specifically in tune with why an enforcement mechanism is important for preemption, given that you live in Denver <laughs> or you live in Colorado. And uh, yeah, yeah. Colorado has a preemption law. And I remember when I was visiting you, you're like, oh, we're in Denver. I can't, we, we can't have our, our, you know, open carry or whatever. And I'm like, yeah. oh, I thought you had preemption law. And you're like, yeah, we do, but we don't. It's complicated. Yeah. And and that's why, you know, saying that a state does or doesn't have fire and preemption law is sometimes short-sighted. And that's the flaw, frankly, of a lot of things like that. You know, we love to give simple yes, no answers to legal questions. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Is there high-capacity magazine ban in New York? Yes, there is. Yeah, but but just the, just the yes might be a little not quite enough information for you to know what to do next, right? Mm-hmm. And so, is there a firearm preemption statute in Colorado? The answer is yes, um, but it's it's very weak compared to firearms preemption statutes in other states. And in fact, that's a pretty good segue because our next story is out of Colorado. So mm-hmm. let, let's get into that one specifically. Then I'll speak more broadly about the drama we're facing here in Colorado, as I understand it. So in Colorado, Governor Jared Polis has signed the quote, vote without fear act, end quote, which is House Bill 22-1086. This new law bans the open carry of a firearm at voting locations in Colorado. Uh, (laughs) So the the theory is that, you know, if I go pack my gun on my hip and open carry it down to the, I don't know, the, the sidewalk in front of the library, where people are casting their votes on election day, that that somehow intimidates people. Um, you know, I'm holding a sign that says, you know, vote for so-and-so. And I got a gun on my hip. And people are like, oh, I better vote for that person or else that guy might shoot me. So we have to make that illegal now so that people aren't intimidated. So they can, they can vote without fear of getting shot outside of a voting location, which has happened never. Um, but maybe maybe people have reported being terrified. I don't know. What do you think about that one, Matthew? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, and the the point is 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 that 
if the voting location was, let's say it's inside a building that is prohibited anyways, right? Like a school. A school, right? Like you wouldn't be able to carry into that anyways. We're talking about like the property of a building that's, you know, maybe wherever it might be, right? And it's not automatic. It's already prohibited. Now they just want to add this extra layer. And like we covered this when it was just in the works, um, I think last month or the month before. And like I said, I mean, I, I understand. I think there's a, a history of like voter intimidation in the 70s with, you know, different groups showing up and being armed with uh, trying to intimidate people. It, it, but uh, th- this doesn't have any language of that. And, and uh, there, it's already illegal to intimidate voters with force and, and aggre- you know, threats uh, of violence, threats of violence. Right. Yeah. Like that's already illegal. We're just making it illegal for you to do nothing other than stand there holding your kid's hand, waiting in line to go vote and not saying anything to anybody. And <laughs> you just violated the law. Like we're, we're not that that's, that's crazy. So. Yeah. Um, I, this is one of those things for me. That's kind of a pointless law on both sides. I say pointless because it makes someone feel like they've done something big. Like, Oh my gosh, when I was state Senator, I introduced the vote without, without fear. fear act. Yeah. And I, and we got it passed cause I went to battle on the, you know, for that one. It's like, so what did you actually, I mean, are there a bunch of people open carrying at voting locations in Colorado? Not that I've seen. Like uh, maybe maybe in like rural, you know, corner of the state that's almost Nebraska, Colorado. But I can tell you here in the Denver metro, that ain't happening. Pe- cops would be cold. People would freak out, man. Uh, and it doesn't keep me from having a gun. I just can't open carry it there. Mm-hmm. Right. So presuming I have a permit or I'm otherwise not prohibited from carrying concealed, I could still have it concealed. I'm just apparently at that point, not, not intimidating anybody with the presence of the gun. But the, the premise is what I dislike. And the premise is that the mere presence of the gun is an intimidation factor. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem here is that we're suggesting that the, just the presence, the visibility of a gun is intimidating to others. And that's the, the real crux and problem. For those who aren't aware, in case you're curious, Colorado is unique in our open carry laws in that we don't have one. There is no Colorado state statutes on the, on, on the books at all that exists that says anything about walking around with a visible gun until this law came around. So we don't have a law in Colorado that says you can open carry. We just have never had a law that said you couldn't. And so now with the existence of this new bill, it's the first state statute that addresses the idea of open carry at all. And of course, it only speaks to to voting locations. So so this is one of those things where it's always been left up to the local jurisdictions to determine how to deal with open carry because there, there wasn't a state law prohibiting it or guaranteeing the right. There just was the lack of a law left it kind of open to a local jurisdiction to do something without being uh, in in trouble with any sort of preemption law because the preemption law in this case in Colorado as weak as it is it it doesn't protect a law that doesn't exist and so there's no there's no guaranteed right to open carry in Colorado it's just the lack of a prohibition makes it legal unless you're in a local jurisdiction that's prohibited it so anyway kind of an interesting weird thing that's going on in Colorado and now we have a, a we, our first law in the books in Colorado that speaks to open carry and it only addresses voting locations. So if that's where it ends, I guess I'll, I'll take that as a win, frankly. Uh, not that I think this, this law is good, only that I'm glad it didn't go any further than this. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, I, I didn't read the entirety of the law, but I wondered, you know, we, they try to make the, uh, the drop boxes, right, for voting more accessible so everybody could vote and have access and blah, blah, blah. Would this apply to that too? Would you not be able to even walk up to a voting Dropbox and drop. I, I don't know, but I'm just saying, like, where where do you go with this? Where you know, and it's just, it, it, I, I, you hit it the nail on the head. Like, it's assuming that the mere presence of a firearm is, is intimidating, and if you go with that, then you, you know, I, I think that that's basically the narrative: is guns are bad. People that have guns are are not stable or not, you know, just their mere presence is not good, um, and. It, this is just another kind of like inch towards normalizing uh, the fact that anybody who has a, has a firearm must, you know, you have to be very concerned about them. Um, it, it may be true. There, there may be people that you want to be concerned about, right? There absolutely are, but um, not everybody. So. Yeah. Yep. That's, that's a, that's a problem. <laughs> 
All right. So that wraps up our legislative updates for today. There's probably other things going on. If you are curious or interested in some sort of legislative related story, laws that are, you know, that are being debated on, proposed or passed in your local city, county or state that we haven't touched on, please send those to us at podcast at concealedcarry.com via email. And we'll add those to the list of things we're keeping an eye on and that we can discuss. We do this episode, these legislative, this legislative update podcast episode once a month. And so you can always be tuned in to receive those either by uh, participating in the live broadcast of this show on Facebook or YouTube, or of course, subscribing to the actual podcast feed anywhere podcasts can be found. Uh, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Audible, whatever, wherever it is that you listen to to your podcast. Thank you, Matthew, for joining me today. Thank you, sir. Thanks uh, for listening, guys. Thanks. Yeah. So with, with that in mind, uh, thank you again to our sponsors, The Legal Boundaries by State Book. Check it out, as well as the Foundation Belt from EDC Belt Company. As always, we'd like you to encourage to subscribe to the podcast. You can subscribe just by opening up your phone. If you have an iPhone, it's the iTunes podcast app. Or if you have a Android device, then probably the most uh, recognizable, easy-to-find app is the Google Podcast app. It's an official Google app. You can just download that and search for Concealed Carry podcast and get subscribed that way you'll get notified every time we release a new show traditionally we release new shows twice a week generally on tuesdays and thursdays unless something funky happens and we get uh, off a little bit but we encourage you to get subscribed and leave us a review on itunes or google play or wherever it is that you listen to the show Uh, like always we are grateful for all of our sponsors for all of our listeners and for everyone who participates with us our guests etc so until next time Remember to train right, train off, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. A reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.